If you follow me on Twitter at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? We will take it easy on the memes. Monday, February 1st, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let me just say, February 1st as a Monday is the best of all the days because a 28-day month means it's a multiple of seven. It means you go 1st, 8th, 15th, 22nd. It's a really easy way to organize a month. Thank you, February 2021. 2021's looking up. Unless you're, say, a Nobel Prize winner. See, there's some international news I've been meaning to get to. We have domestic events to concentrate on. But I have some notes in my file, some international stories. For instance, in Thailand, the worst thing you could call someone is a monitor lizard. I don't, I don't know why I didn't get too much into it, but don't call someone that. That's one of the international notes I wanted to get to. The second one was, all these Nobel Peace Prize winners are doing unpeaceful things. I was noticing a trend. Here's the 2019 Nobel announcement from Berit Rees Anderson, chair of the Norwegian Nobel Committee. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abe Ahmed Ali for his efforts to achieve peace and international cooperation and in particular for his decisive initiative to resolve the border conflict with neighboring Eritrea. Well, Ahmed tried, and now he's not trying so much. To be fair, the current conflict that he's engaged in is not with Eritrea, but with the Tigray region. Still, the Nobel Peace Prize winner is crushing a rebellion there. It's a hard job, I understand. Nobel Peace Prize winners aren't saints, and no one exemplifies that truth more than Aung San Suu Kyi, the Peace Prize winner of 1991. Aung San Suu Kyi has recently been on trial for genocide. Yes, she opposed the Burmese, now Myanmar's dictators, and she had success, and the military junta didn't go away totally, but it ceded to the civilian and democratically elected people like Suu Kyi. But the price was the persecution of the Rohingya people, a policy that, because she's a popularly elected politician, we should note, was actually quite popular. This is where democracy and human rights don't often go hand in hand. Suu Kyi has been detained by the junta. The U.S., the world, is decrying this. Though I gotta say, back when she was just purely a symbol of democracy and a Nobel Peace Prize winner and a democracy advocate and not a Nobel Peace Prize winner, democracy advocate slash credibly accused genocider, I did get more roused. I wonder if the Rohingya are echoing the EU, the US, and the UN's call to release Suu Kyi. A religious minority, the Rohingya are Muslim in the overwhelmingly Buddhist nation, and they had been subject to crackdowns when the junta was in power. Uh, many fled to Bangladesh in 78. They were repatriated. But ethnic cleansing? No. That is after the Aung San Suu Kyi democracy movement replaced the military. And now the military seems to have replaced her. Certainly a human rights violation, but not all humans involved will be affected equally. On the show today, I spiel about GameStop. Sorry, I had to do it. There's almost a fairy tale gloss we have applied to some schlemiel who goes by Roaring Kitty. But first, we live in a world influenced by algorithms and machines and computerized models that seek to anticipate how humans think. And the thing is, they do it well, pretty well, dangerously well. For years and years, 50 years, this has actually been an effort 
for very smart people to try to predict how other people might think, how they might act, how they might vote. The historian and writer Jill Lepore has come across a fascinating story about the early attempts to invent a machine to anticipate man. The name of the book is If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future. Jill Lepore, up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. So after every election, there is an explanation. It's probably an over-interpretive explanation. Sometimes elections, sometimes a candidate will eke out a two-point win and everything that candidate did will be described as the right thing to have done. But it seems to me that explanations for elections always have a hard science and soft science edge. So sociologically, when, say, Newt Gingrich mounts a Republican take back of the House, it's all about the angry white man. But In terms of hard science, when, say, Barack Obama wins, it's all because of his superior data analytics team. There was a time, and you may have forgotten this, it wasn't that long ago, when micro-targeting was such a huge buzzword. Time magazine, when that was a thing, put it on their cover, and they told you that they know who you are, and your zip code and your name was on the cover of Time magazine. And this proved that this new electoral technique would be changing everything. Well, Jill Lepore in her new book goes back to one of the hard science explanations or what was touted as the hard science of elections that would change not just elections, but how we decide most things. And she applies a historian and I think social scientist lens to it. It's fascinating. The name of the book is If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future. Jill Lepore, welcome back to The Gist. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Mike. So... The Simulmatics Corporation, they wanted the word sim, we'll explain how they are, but let's just talk about Simulmatics. They wanted that word to be on everyone's lips and something like cybernetics. The problem is, and you know this because you're a wonderful writer and know how words work, the L and the M smash into each other. <laughs> that word, I think, was doomed doomed to failure if it was to be said out loud from this from the start. Yeah, there's a great letter when the president of the company writes to, to the stockholders with a report and... This is a sentence where he says, the mystery of the Simulmatics Corporation began with its name. And you're like, yeah, and also the disaster. It's just a, a truly yeah. bad call. But it's a mashup of simulation and automation or, or automatic. And they took their cue from the Norbert Wiener book, Cybernetics, which, you know, like Kleenex or something, became a word that describes the thing itself, a, a brand name that describes the thing itself. By Simulmatics, they really meant what we mean by artificial intelligence, which is also a weird term, but was the one that stuck. But artificial intelligence was coined as a term in 1956 and simulmatics in 1959. So they're of the same moment in the history of technology. 
Right. And that moment was, I think, a belief, an almost uh, religious belief in the possibilities of technology to explain the theretofore mysterious conditions of the human mind, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so it's the height of the founding of what comes to be called behavioral science, which is also founded as such in the 1950s, which before then was just more quaintly called psychological warfare. (laughs) But it kind of intersects with what comes to be called computer science in the 1950s in sort of a kind of big bang way because then it has an explosive effect on American politics. That's the story that I kind of stumbled across in the archives and decided was was important to tell because somehow I feel like we just don't have a backstory for Facebook algorithms and Cambridge Analytica. It's like this stuff just kind of sprung from Zeus's head like Athena, like all of a sudden in 2004 or 2016 or whatever year, but it has a much longer history. So we'll get into what they were doing, but let's just talk about that for a second. They were trying to do early versions of, or perhaps the most advanced versions for their time, of what Cambridge Analytica firms like that were doing. Do you view it like a species that died out and then another species arose or at the same time flourished on a different continent? And they do seem similar, but one didn't actually evolve from the other? (laughs) Or do you see it as an evolution where kind of the evolutionary part may have been forgotten even by, say, Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, that's really interesting. Like, what is the shape of the genealogical tree? And is this like a broken limb or something? I kind of like your metaphor. So I'm going to run with that Simulmatics is sort of like the Neanderthals, right? Like they got absorbed and now we have redheads. <laughs> you know, like this weird, you know, the kind of different versions of, of hominids. I think that you can actually trace some lines from Simulmatics down to social media companies. Like the guy who was the a key founder of the Simulmatics Corporation a guy named Ithiel de Sola Poole, who was a political scientist at MIT. He coins the phrase social network. He's responsible for the six degrees of separation, the math that lies behind what Facebook is as a social network comes from his work. That said, that's not what he was doing when he was working for Simulmatic, so it's a little orthogonal in, in its own way. But there are lots of ways in which the basic premise that you could simulate a human population and conduct endless if-then sequences on a computer program to anticipate and predict its possible reactions to any set of circumstances kind of infinitely does really describe a lot of what is done by algorithms that are trying to predict, you know, which book would you like to buy next? You know, if you're going to buy Cheese Whiz, is it also going to convince you to put Ritz crackers in your shopping cart? That work of, of simulation goes way back and, and I think is a fairly direct line of descent. Yeah, Ithiel de Sola Pool, one of a Spanish Jew who was suspected of communism, was a socialist. It caused some hiccups in getting his credentials for at the Pentagon, one of the fascinating characters there. But if there is a father of this machine, who is it? Or this corporation, who is it? It's this guy, Ed Greenfield, who uh, is sort of like the Danny Ocean of the Ocean's Eleven, and that is the Simulmatics Corporation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's the guy yes. you know, putting the team together. He's this very slick Madison Avenue ad man in the 1950s, right? So Madison Avenue's new. Like, those big advertising agencies go back to the 20s, but they explode after the Second World War. I mean, think about the Second World War. Like, all these factories have been um, producing at maximum capacity over their capacity during the war for the war effort after the war in order to keep the economy going and keep soldiers employed who are coming back from the war. 
there's just this massive output of consumer goods that are mostly unnecessary. <laughs> you know, you've got your Barbie dolls and your hula hoops and your, you know, hair drying machines and whatnot. And so ad agencies just explode in the 1950s trying to convince people to buy these things or to switch from one brand or the other of these things. So this big boom in advertising and Greenfield gets in on that. But unlike most big advertisers, he's a liberal. Like a lot of these big advertising firms, the Republican guys working for big business because Republican, hard to remember, Republicans used to be the party of big business, Democrats, the party of labor. And so most of these big ad agencies are Republican affiliated. And Greenfield's a liberal and he's interested both in ad campaigns, which he does a lot of and works for big, big clients. But he also wants to do political consulting to use the tools of mass advertising to help Democrats get elected to office. And he's the guy who comes up with the idea of building what he will come to call the people machine, a machine that can predict how people are going to vote and therefore influence elections. Yeah. And and TV advertising was uh, just pretty much started in 1952. Stevenson versus Eisenhower, a guy named Rosser Reeves, who you talk about, who's a little like Greenfield, I think, a backslapping uh, Wall Street guy, invents TV advertising. There's a great episode of your podcast, The Last Archive, all about Rosser Reeves. But where does it show up? This guy, Greenfield, has an idea. So where is his idea first presented as this is it, this is the machine, this is going to be changing your lives in America. So, yeah, in 1959, he writes a proposal, top secret classified proposal for what he at that point was calling Project Macroscope, like a, like a microscope can see tiny things, but the macroscope can see everything. And he sends it's, it. It's, a, it's actually a better word than simulmatics, I would it say. It is. I, yeah, I don't know why they ditched that. But so yeah. he sends it around. The, in 1959, uh, Democratic operatives think that Adlai Stevenson, the governor of Illinois, is going to run for a third time. He loses to Eisenhower in 52. He loses to Eisenhower in 56. But it's still thought he's going to run again in 1960. So Greenfield writes up this proposal. He's he's brought together his whole Ocean's Eleven team. He's got behavioral scientists, computer guys. He's He's got other ad guys. He's got a, a PR guy. He's got everything that he needs. He has a, a psychologist, a political scientist. And uh, he writes up this proposal and sends it to some Stevenson aides. And says, like, this is this is how we're going to win in 1960. This is how we can finally defeat the Republicans with my macroscope. And people are kind of just shocked at the idea that Greenfield is presenting, which is that a candidate should ask a computer how to frame a campaign strategy. Yeah. What did he say? What advice was this computer spitting out? So kind of uh, interestingly, what Greenfield and other political insiders understood to be the Democratic Party's problem in the 1950s and political outsiders, too, because this was pretty obvious. So the Democratic Party had lost its New Deal coalition. It lost from the New Deal coalition black voters. So FDR in the 1930s had won the White House by putting together this coalition and pulling black voters from the Republican Party, right? The party of Lincoln, the party of the great emancipator. In states where black people could vote, they voted for Republicans. But FDR had disrupted that and brought black voters into his coalition. Eisenhower pulled them back to the Republican Party in 1952 because the Democrats were segregationists, right? There was the Dixiecrat bolt in 1948. Uh, Stevenson had a S Alabama segregationist as his running mate in 1952. In 1956, he told civil rights audiences they should just wait. They needed to have patience. It was going to be a long time before segregation could end. So they were just failing and failing and failing at these national elections. So the principal reason, in fact, that Ed Greenfield had proposed to build this macroscope 
was to bring to bear empirical evidence, the sexiest kind of evidence you could have, quantitative evidence spat out by a computer that black voters mattered. Yeah, and it did. And that's what it said. Um, I don't know back then if they had a conception that your output is only as good as your input, but you just acknowledge like the whole point of the project is to get to this result. They got to that result. It, by the way, is a correct result. Did the Kennedy campaign really take its advice? I know that there was a hesitancy to acknowledge that they were relying on this computer, on this machine, especially as the campaign itself and the administration was worried about administration. But how much of an impact did the machine and the corporation really have? I think it's hard to measure. So it's a, tr- it's a frustrating thing about the book, right? In the same way, it's hard to Which measure. Which is something that the Similmax Corporation never said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so neither did Cambridge Analytica. Like Cambridge Analytica is going to take credit for Brexit. It's going to take credit for Donald Trump's victory, right? Like it's a hokum company. Like that's what they're going to do. They're going to take credit if they can. Mm-hmm, and, they, mm-hmm. and and it's all about perceptions in that way, kind of like a perception hack. Like if we can convince people that we did it, then we stay in business. It is the case that when Similmatics was undertaken taking its first study on uh, black voters in the North, public opinion polls didn't interview black voters. Gallup didn't interview black voters because black voters couldn't vote in the South. And, you know, they just decided there weren't enough black people in the North to bother to count. And then there's just a kind of deep prejudice in the polling industry that's uninterested in the black voter. So just by doing the work, I think they made a difference of just at least saying this is a moment when black voters need to be counted. But I would say Kennedy isn't the nominee until the convention, you know, in the summer of 1960. What has happened in the interim between the time in 1959 that Simulmatics begins its study and the summer of 1960 that Kennedy becomes the nominee, of course, is the incredibly prominent sit-in campaign in the South that begins in Greensboro, North Carolina in February of 1960. All spring, there are sit-ins all across the South that Americans are watching on their television screens in their living rooms and seeing, you know, police and police dogs go out and attack people who are, you know, sitting in restaurants or, or, or staging public protests. The real message, you know, Black Voters Matter was... <laughs> wasn't coming from this, uh, you know, IBM 704 machine. It was coming from people in the streets. So if I was a fairly plugged in uh, watcher of politics, you know, I got my morning and my afternoon paper and uh, maybe uh, the book of the month club recommendations and seriously took my subscription to Time magazine. How aware would I be of this corporation of Simulmatics? You'd have been aware of it after the election. So no one would have heard of it before the election except for people in the DNC who funded the project or, you know, people who were on the platform committee at the convention who read the reports. But there was nascent, very public versions of it. Like in 1952, right, CBS had this huge computer that didn't really work for them because they didn't trust it. So it's not like it was entirely out of the public eye. Yeah. So 1952 election, it was the first time Americans, most Americans had seen a computer because CBS News brought in a Univac, the first commercial general purpose commuter that had been used to count the census in 1950. So it's like in people's vision. But Simulmatics does make a big news splash uh, right after the election when Greenfield like goes on CBS radio and says, well, we're responsible for Kennedy's triumph and explains what it does. And he has a goes on a PR blitz. And then there's a, a big story in Harper's Magazine in December of 1960 the article's called The People Machine, and, and it explains what the machine does and how it had worked and when the Kennedy campaign deployed it and describes the results of each of its studies. And then there is a kind of explosion. So no matter where you were in the country, your newspaper would have covered it. It didn't last long, but there was a, a hubbub 
<laughs> about the people machine because most people wanted to take the opportunity to denounce it, to say, okay, you know, whether you liked Kennedy or not, the idea that a political candidate would make a decision about how to speak about an issue, especially to a particular portion of the population and not to another portion of the population, is inimical to like decent political leadership in a democracy, right? So because what the people machine was saying, like, to black voters in the North, say this, and, you know, to to Jews in, in the West, say that. And, right, so the duplicity of targeting different audiences with different political messages, which, of course, politicians do, was made legible and then attached to this giant, somewhat sinister image that people had in mind of what a computer was. Like, think of all the dystopian representations of computers in 1960s movies, like, like Failsafe or 2001, right? The, the computer's always this giant mammoth, super creepy thing that is, you know, controlled by businessmen and corporations. There's creepy computers in our movies now, but they're miniature things or they're like her, they're embodied AI or something. The computer in people's minds was this giant, giant, giant machine, like the size of an airport hangar or something that could control the whole universe. And so when the story of Kennedy's campaign having purchased the consulting services of this company that sold services of a people machine, people really freaked out and said, like, this is the end of democracy. Yeah. And also, and you make this point early on, and it's apparent that the people, the demographics, the mindset, the background, the race, the gender of the people has a huge sway uh, into what the product shows. And that was, well... I, I would say that that was a flaw with the system, but even though uh, our artificial intelligence systems now are ascendant, it's not like that flaw has been corrected or really even addressed. Yeah, I, I, I think, if anything, that's the most uncanny thing about the story as it emerged from my research, right, was that these guys, they were behavioral scientists. Their work is to try to program a computer to predict how people are going to behave in response to information. And they really are keenly interested in this question, desperately interested in this question. They're really smart. They're applying, you know, all of their talents to this question. And all around them, tumbling to the ground in ruins, are all of their relationships with actual human beings whose actions they do not understand at all. Like their marriages are falling apart. Their children are growing to hate them. The the kind of political purchase that liberalism has on the culture is disintegrating before their eyes like there's something almost shakespearean about these guys they're like leer like they just can't see what actual love is they're trying to like program this machine to think and behave like a human because they don't understand people at all and tomorrow we will continue the conversation with jill lapore author of if then how the simulmatics corporation invented the future And now the spiel. At the risk of backtracking on my edict about the coverage of GameStop, the gist feels it must now say something about GameStop. To remind you of what my edict was about GameStop, it was just this one insight. It's not a game. Stop. But I've been pulled into this discussion, not the actual discussion, but an observation about the discussion, maybe a discussion of the discussion. There's a lot that seems funny about the GameStop versus hedge fund story. Now, seems funny, I mean that. It seems funny in the sense that, you know, it seems a little off. Something about that seems funny. Mm-hmm. But something also seems funny in that it's not really funny, but I guess some people decided this was funny. Like the word stonks. Instead of calling stock stock or stocks, the guys on the Reddit board call them stonks. 
and a good laugh was had by some because they added an N. I want to tank or debunk it, but merely umpank this phenomenon. So it's not that funny. Maybe it's funny. I don't know. I guess we can all agree it's kind of sort of funny. There is, however, another thing that a lot of the commentators on this story have settled on, which is what the moral of the story is. It's kind of hard to describe the details, but by and large, they all know what the moral is. Now, this is a story about Reddit boards and an insurgency against people taking a short position in a stock. And yet somehow we are asked and it is answered that this is clearly a referendum on the economy, capitalism and America. Bernie Sanders asked about this, said what Bernie Sanders says. In one sentence, I have long believed that the business model of Wall Street is fraud. I think we have to take a very hard look at the kind of illegal activities and outrageous behavior on the part of the hedge funds and other Wall Street players. Now, that doesn't seem to me to be a nuanced accounting of the specifics of this moment. He's long believed that the business model is fraud. I know he has because he's long said that and it long gets applause and there's a lot to it. But also, you know, I would think the business model of Wall Street is to offer capitalization for investments and thus creating, you know, jobs and wealth in general, as capitalism does. And I wonder if Bernie has a big problem with the Swedish stock market or the Danish bourse, of course, Nasdaq, Copenhagen. I don't know. I'm not really criticizing Bernie. I'm just noting that Bernie Sanders' answers about this specific story was to retreat back on, it's what I've always said. Elizabeth Warren also asked about this on CNN, had at least a somewhat more nuanced opinion. We need more regulation about market manipulation. And look, uh, what has happened back and forth with GameStop, they aren't the ones who invented uh, this kind of uh, uh, activity going on. She then pivoted to talking about the problem of stock buybacks, which is a problem. It just isn't this problem. If this is a problem. So there you have two senators, the two most aggressive senators in terms of regulating the markets, talking about regulating the markets like they've always been saying. But what about this story? What about this story in the news? Yes, for them, it's a chance to plug their pet projects. But Aaron Ross Sorkin, not a senator, a journalist, spoke for, I would say, the progressive conventional wisdom when he told The Daily that this weird story where one day, I don't know, Justin Timberlake or Jared Leto is going to go up for the role of deep fucking value, who is the main mover in the Reddit space. This bizarre left field, sui generis tale is no less than an x-ray of our society, a veritable CAT scan of the American soul. Oh, the truth is, this is not about profits and losses. This is about how rigged and unfair the stock market is, how it is not a level playing field, how much distrust exists in the American public. This is even goes beyond the stock market. This is about inequality in America and the haves and the have-nots and what the opportunities are for people and what the special opportunities that have been created for those who already are wealthy and how they have opportunities that others don't. If you think this isn't about profits and losses, when the GameStop investors start experiencing massive losses, tell me that the story isn't going to change. This is, of course, about profits and losses. It's, of course, about deep fucking value kitty and Coco Loco and Stranger Skin 69, people on the Reddit board making money and hedge fund guys losing money. And this is about people feeling aggrieved because we have a system of have and have nots. 
Okay, what if that wasn't the system? What if our Gini coefficient was where it was in, I don't know, 1973 or where it is in Sweden? Would the story seem so different then? There is income inequality. It's bad. Hedge fund guys are rich. And therefore, Reddit user Confused Houseplant or Carl Frickin' Marx are leading a charge of market correction, societal examination, redress. Huh. You know, ever since I was born, and probably before, the stock market was always seen as a place where rich guys got rich and regular people could definitely lose their shirts. The phrase Wall Street fat cat not invented since 2021. Thomas Nast making cartoons of traders lighting cigars with money. Those aren't gifts or memes. If this is a backlash to income inequality, or if this is a sudden realization that the game is rigged, well, let me ask, when was the time when high finance was seen as something other than a rigged game or one where the rich get richer. Black Monday was in 1987. Oliver Stone's Wall Street came out right around that time. If you paid attention, years before, uh, I think it was 1980, the Hunt brothers tried to corner the silver market. There was a Michael Caine movie called Silver Bears about ripping off the silver market. There was never a time, and I'm pointing to movies and popular art, because there was never a time when the markets weren't seen as a place where chicanery might very well make you wealthy and hubris could break the little guy. There's not a real correlation between our social attitudes at the moment and the economic realities of income inequality and the haves and have-nots. That's not the correlation to GameStop. It's that there are Reddit message boards and apps that can make everyone buy and sell without having to pay a broker's fee. That's the difference. How is a mass manipulation of one stock in any way a blow for anyone other than the specific investors who, ahem, ahem, investors, by the way, are they investors? These guys playing the market who will one day be sitting on huge losses, just as right now they're sitting on huge gains. I'm not against it, by the way. It's fine. It was an exploitable quirk, and Deep Kitty Value got in, and he exploited the quirk. Well done. But it doesn't mean a damn thing about Bernie Sanders' greater agenda, or Elizabeth Warren's greater agenda, or, oh, geez, Chuck Todd's idea. So it sounds like you think short selling is bad for the economy. Is that something that should be legal? What? So we'll have a stock market where you could take a position that stocks will go up, but not one where they'll go down. It would destroy the ecosystem. I do think there is a trend here. I can analyze the GameStop story this way. One trend is a human trend, and one's more recent and faddish. Okay, the human trend is to say, well, it's, it's what I've always been saying, right? You're given a weird, hard-to-explain phenomenon, and you retreat to, well, these are my priors. But the recent faddish take is to look at an event that's motivated by lashing out or a big spasm of anger and frustration, and to ascribe that to laudable populist sentiment, we did that with the Arab Spring and Erdogan in Turkey and early signs of Trumpism or even Ur-Trumps like, say, Jesse the Body Ventura. Maybe we did it with James Trafficant or other charismatic rogues that we see in their success a sign that the people, the always wise, always understanding people have had enough. And their frustration is, of course, understandable. And this is a sign they can't take it anymore. And the purveyors of this interpretation offer a positive sheen to that. And that positive sheen often requires ignoring the ugly elements propelling it forward or the things out of left field, like a Reddit message board or a Robinhood app that are the real explanation. 
I really think in this case, technology enabled Hello Kitty and Rolling in the Deep Value and Stonk McGonk 29 to pull one over on some hedge fund guys, who, by the way, may be selfish and venal, but in this case, might also have been absolutely right that GameStop stock shouldn't have been worth even $3, let alone $300. So I say it's just as warranted to draw a deep societal lesson over this as it is to watch Caddyshack or Animal House or some other slobs versus snobs narrative and say, that's it. That's it right there. That speaks to the moment. Bluto is righteousness and Otter is regulation and Dean is neoliberalism and double secret probation is the road to serfdom. Just stop. DJ Scatcat74 bought himself some stonks. Now you and me too, we need to buy an index fund if we can afford it, put some aside from our weekly paycheck. We need to diversify our portfolio. And after many, many years of just letting it sit, we'll be a little bit better off in retirement than if we didn't do that. Or AMC's looking ripe at 13. Get on that now. And that's it for today's show. Shayna Roth produces The Gist. Her Reddit Wall Street bets name is Tickin' Chenders. Margaret Kelly produces The Gist. Her Reddit name is Frexit Strategy. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Or maybe to boost ratings, Podcants. Those would be the ones behind the paywall. The Gist. If your stonks go kerplonk, it shouldn't come as a shonk. I hope you don't clean your clonk or put you in honk. Or force bad life choices like siring young out of wedlock. Oom pru de pru du pru, and thanks for listening.